Have you got what it takes to keep up with Garrett? Well, let's find out with Thief. This week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again, as we always are, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. The show's almost on time this week. I'm, I'm shocked and amazed. Uh, I, I'm also amazed because Saturday, which is usually, I guess, the day before I do all the heavy lifting to write up the show... Uh, I, I got pretty sick all of a sudden, kind of like, um, you know, in the morning I was, I was a-okay, we wandered around, did some stuff, and um, come Sunday, Saturday afternoon, I started feeling a little weird, and then on Saturday night I was just ill, like cold, sniffling, headache, body pain, weirdness, and then Sunday I didn't feel so hot, and uh, still wrote up most of the show, and then Monday wrote up the rest of the show, still not feeling very hot, and it is now Tuesday, and I am recording the show, and... Uh, I'm still, once again, not uh, not feeling the greatest. Uh, I could probably do with a little lie down, but uh, but I'm going to get this done if it kills me. So uh, if I sound a little uh, a little hoarse, if I sound a little nasally, uh, I do apologize. If I have to stop and cough, <laughs> I apologize. I'll, I'll try and cut out any of those that uh, that pop up in the recording. But um, aside from that, things are good. It's nice and cool now. Uh, the summer is most assuredly over, and uh, and frankly, I'm happy. I think I'm. It was. It was about time. At least for me. I know people will say that I'm crazy, but I was done with summer. I'm. I'm happy that things are cool. That I can go outside wearing a sweater. Um, you know, I'm not dying of heat. Turn the air conditioning off in the house, and um, you know, we're on to on to fall, waiting for the leaves to change color, and then it will be uh, ski season soon enough. Which God knows I love. It's. It's winter is is probably one of my favorite times of year to do stuff. So. That is that. We got a big show this week, so enough uh, enough of me babbling about the weather. Let's get on to the news. So uh, this week, earlier in the week, I realized my my news my news docket was empty, so I put it to uh, put it to the Facebook group, put it to Twitter, and I got uh, quite a bit of stuff here. So maybe I'll do this a bit more often, or uh, you know, if you guys see any news, feel free to post. I know a lot of you Facebook members do, and I appreciate it very much. So let's begin. Steam has recently announced their family sharing program. Now, they've, they have gone to some lengths to explain uh, explain exactly how it works, but at least for me, there, there's a lot of confusion kind of surrounding the whole thing. So my understanding, and granted this, this may be wrong, I've done a bit of reading, but uh, I'm by no means fully informed on this whole situation, but my understanding is that basically... Uh, you will be given the ability to share your account with a certain number of other accounts. Uh, they will have access to your games, but will maintain independent achievements and all that other stuff that comes along with a, with a Steam account. What isn't clear to me is what happens to your access when your account is uh, is being shared. So some reports say that your account gets fully locked out. So uh, say me and Fran, my wife, have have separate Steam accounts. We do not because Fran does not game. But say we did, theoretically. Uh, me and Fran had shared Steam accounts or family shared Steam accounts. Uh, she was accessing a game on my account. Then uh, my account is fully locked out. I cannot play any games on my account. Uh, other reports say that just that individual game is locked out. So say Fran is playing Bioshock Infinite, that means I can't play Bioshock Infinite, but I can play another game on my account. I don't think that's correct. It would be awesome if that's how it worked, but uh, I'm sure once the beta program gets underway, we will know more. For now, family sharing seems like a really, really cool idea, not something that I will necessarily use because I'm the only gamer in the house. But uh, you know, if you're uh, roommates, if you're husband and wife, partners, anything like that, who, uh, who are both gamers. Uh, it's a really great idea. If you got kids, it's an amazing idea. So, uh, I am, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty interested to see how steam family sharing actually, uh, actually shakes out next in the news, a game called 
hardware ship breakers, or at least it used to be called hardware ship breakers. Uh, this is a project uh, to create a spiritual successor to the 1999 Relic real-time strategy game called Homeworld. Uh, the, the hardware ship breakers team is comprised of X relic staff. I'm not sure. I imagine some of them worked on the original game. Some of them may have not, but, uh, definitely X staff from the company that made it. Uh, so on top of this, so fine, they want to make a game in, in, in the vein of, uh, of Homeworld. Well, on top of that, it seems that Gearbox Software, who is the current IP holder of the Homeworld franchise, have lent them the, uh, the Homeworld IP. So this is now not just a game in the spirit of Homeworld, it is an official Homeworld game. Uh, this is a game, at least uh, the original Homeworld, that uh, that I may cover on the show at some point, so it's good to hear it's still alive and kicking. In fact, the game has been officially retitled Homeworld Shipbreakers, so uh, really excited to see where things go with that. So as a follow-up to last week, we have some Lemmings news. Uh, it seems that I will indeed be getting a bit of what I asked for at the end of the last show in the near future we're going to see the release of Lemmings Touch on the Vita. Uh, the UI has been redesigned to better suit a touch interface. It looks like uh, you get something kind of like a, an interface coin or whatever, if you want to use the uh, the LucasArts term, that pops up when you, I imagine it's when you hold your finger down on the screen and that'll let you select your your Lemming jobs and all that uh, and all that stuff. Uh, so it, screenshots all look very, very interesting. Uh, the colors are very, uh, very candy and and all that very uh i don't know if they're very lemmings appropriate a lot of the original lemmings colors were uh were a bit drab but uh hopefully the gameplay is there uh so well sony doesn't seem to be letting lemmings off of their platforms at least we are getting a modern touch enabled version now we got some some legal news here i am pretty sure that i mentioned this back in the duke nukem 3d show but the lawsuit that 3D Realms has launched or had launched against Gearbox Software over uh, Duke Nukem rights for Duke Nukem Forever, or sorry, Duke Nukem Forever royalties, has been dropped. Now, we have a, a bit of a mixed message from both sides here. Uh, 3D Realms claims that uh, that they, they're satisfied with the deals made and the money that exchanged hands and, and blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, Gearbox reps report that the uh, claim was dropped with prejudice. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what uh, dropping a claim with prejudice actually means, being that I am not a lawyer, though I can play one on TV, uh, but it frankly doesn't sound very amicable to me. Next in the news, we have some Peter Molyneux news. Uh, if you guys remember, I talked a little while back about Goddess or Godus, uh, which is Molyneux's new take on the God game. Well, it has entered Steam Early Access. Uh, I've gotten some preliminary reports that uh, the game is good, but uh, it still has a ways to go before it's a fully marketable game. This is kind of their past alpha. We're kind of in very early beta access. So uh, I guess the question is, uh, will Mr. Molyneux and his team at 22 Cans recapture the magic of the original populace? Well, you can follow the journey yourself for a mere $19.99 on Steam. Uh, I may grab this at some point myself and give it a whirl. If I do, I will, of course, report on uh, on my thoughts. And, um, you know, this will definitely uh, motivate me uh, a little quicker to to maybe get to doing a, uh, a populist show. Finally, in the news, if you are into sci-fi books, and even more importantly, if you are into Star Wars extended or expanded universe uh, books, you will know who Timothy Zahn is. He basically uh, kick-started the Star Wars Expanded Universe back in, uh, I believe it was 1995, but I might be wrong about that. Well, he and a team of game devs are translating the myriad of alien races that Zahn has dreamed up during his writing career, and they are merging them all into a 4X space strategy game that is being called Parallax. This is going to be kind of a retro-style uh, 4X game very much like Star Control that I that I recently talked about. You got a whole whack of different alien races with different um, with different uh, abilities, different attributes, different advantages, different disadvantages, and uh, they have to uh, exist in uh, in a galaxy together. So they've launched a Kickstarter for the game. They have 26 days left, and they've raised less than fifteen thousand dollars of their half million dollar goal. So if you're interested in uh, in Timothy Zahn and his game Parallax, uh, they most likely will need your help. Don't think 
15,000 in four days is, uh, is on track to funding. So uh, go check out the project page. As always, I will link it in the show notes. As usual, we've got a few emails before we get rolling onto the main topic. First, an email from my buddy BJ. He writes, I myself have never played Lemmings, but there is a series of Lemmings clones on Nintendo platforms in the Mario and Donkey Kong or Mario versus Donkey Kong series that I have played. Although they're okay games, they're, uh, they're really cute little time wasters. Anyways, keep up the good work. Well, thank you, BJ. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've actually never, never heard or came across this, uh, this NES core Mario Donkey Kong, uh, clone version of lemmings and and i i will have to go and look these up that sounds that sounds quite interesting uh next a quick note from jessica she writes i really enjoyed the lemmings podcast i was never given a chance to play it as a child but heard a lot of extremely good things about it from friends growing up if i could find this game available legally anywhere and knew it would actually run on my computer i wouldn't hesitate to grab it hopefully gog will add it to their library one day Thief, however, is a game I have some experience with, although a very limited one. Never actually owned the game at any point, but I've played bits and pieces of it on demo CDs and at friends' houses. I look forward to see what you have to say about it. P.S. Have you ever played the Deer Avenger games? My father and I had a blast with those, especially Deer Avenger 3D. Thanks for that, Jessica. And, um... Let me think here. Right. I went over that Lemmings is not really available anywhere legally. And that's really, really sad. I mean, between that and uh, the older LucasArts adventures that aren't Monkey Island and, uh, you know, quite a few others, it, it, it's sad that there are some of these games that are just not really available. But if you have a, a PS3 or you have a Vita, you can grab Lemmings on there. Uh, Deer Avenger, I have not heard of them. Uh, I googled it real quick, and it, it looks pretty funny. It looks like it's kind of an answer to those uh, those deer hunter games where you're the deer and you're kind of turning the tables on the hunter and uh, and taking them out yourself. So uh, those do look quite hilarious. Finally, uh, we have a message from new listener Roman. He writes, Hi, Joe. Following your podcast since your participation on Elder Geeks Game Club. I've started listening from your first episodes and up to the last ones. Uh, and almost every episode, I wanted to comment on something or share my own experiences with the game, uh, having played the bigger half of everything on your cast, but thought it would be kind of awkward for you to read an email when the podcast had been months away. I've commented a couple of times on your blog, and being now in your final 10 episodes, I realized why not drop you a line? It would be much too much commenting on every game. Maybe I'll revisit some and then write you again. Uh, so I just want to share a bit of comment on, a fa- on the Fallout series. You talked there about how picking age and gender doesn't affect the game in any way, but picking gender, in Fallout 2 at least, gave you additional options in some situations. Mainly, by picking a girl, you could sleep with some NPCs for your benefit, where that option obviously wasn't available for a man, and I think it's vice versa with different NPCs. Love the format of your show, love the length, and keep up what you're doing. I can't imagine you running out of games from the pre-Windows XP era. P.S. To add to the guys who started the whole worldwide audience thing, I'm a proud listener from Latvia. Cheers, Roman. Thank you very much, Roman. Great of you to write in, and um, that's 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 cool. I I don't think I don't think I knew that about uh, about Fallout or Fallout Two that uh, that there were uh, certain small small effects from choosing your gender. It makes sense, and uh, you know that kind of always brings me to my. I don't know if I want to call it my uh, my lack of imagination. Let's say when it comes to uh, to role playing games, I don't have the ability to properly role play a character of the uh, the opposite sex. So I'm never really comfortable playing a game as a woman unless that's the only requirement. Like if I'm playing Tomb Raider, obviously I'm going to play Lara Croft. But uh, like in World of Warcraft, I tried playing a female Blood Elf once or something like that. And uh, I think I got to about level 10 and it, it just didn't jive with me. I couldn't really get into the character. And I don't know if that's something that everyone has to do. Like for me, if I'm playing a character, I have to be able to to get in that character's head and, and play that character. Not to say that I'm going to RP and be like, oh, Hark, thine armor is very powerful and blah, blah, blah. But 
I need my avatar to be a representation of me, which is why I'm kind of a bigger guy. I'm six foot three. I'm, you know, slightly over 200 pounds. So, you know, in games like WoW, I always ended up playing a Tauren or something like that, like kind of the bigger, more hulking characters, because that's kind of how I view myself. I'm a big guy. I got to play a big character. If I had an option to create a character, I would always kind of create a taller character or, you know, a male kind of big guy. And, you know, maybe I'm just not quite so, quite as creative as uh, as some people. So that's it. That's great. I got a hit from Latvia. That's awesome to know. We got quite a few of you guys. I know I have some listeners from Japan, some listeners from uh, from Australia, quite a few in the UK, and uh, and all that. So wow, the podcast is international. It continues to become more international. Thank you all. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for okay. On to the main event: the Thief series. Thief is a series of three games. Uh, the first two were developed by Looking Glass Studios, while the third was developed by Ion Storm Entertainment. All three games were published by Eidos Interactive. I believe it's Eidos. Eidos? Maybe it's Eidos. E-I-D-O-S. You guys know what I'm talking about. Let's say Eidos. Eidos Interactive. The first game came out in 1998 and was named Thief the Dark Project. So as we always do, let's talk genre. So here is a genre that we have not yet come across. Uh, Thief is considered a stealth action game. So what exactly is this thing? Well, a stealth action game is sort of the antithesis of an action game. It is, in fact, an anti-action game. The whole point is to avoid alerting or confronting enemies, sneaking past them in order to accomplish your objective. Uh, These types of games are generally level, mission, or objective-based. That is, you generally have a specific short-term goal in mind. It might be escaping from a prison, assassinating an enemy leader, placing an explosive device, or simply stealing loot. To keep yourself hidden, a stealth player has to take many things into account. Concepts of noise and cover are very important in stealth games. You can avoid enemies by staying hidden in the shadows as they pass, distract them with noises, or disable them in a sneak attack. Most stealth games do also offer a combat option. However, this is generally a last resort as your characters tend not to be very strong or have many hit points. Elements of the world also have an effect on your stealthiness, with different surfaces emitting more or less of a sound as your character moves across them, certain light sources being extinguishable, and and other things like that. So there's more to the genre, as, as I usually say, but let's move on to talking about the games themselves where we will learn more. Okay, story time. The game intro begins as many of the upcoming cinematics throughout the game do, with excerpts from a series of religious books that exist in the Thief universe. Our first is from the Book of Stone. Now, the Book of Stone is one of the holy books of the Hammerites, one of the main forces for order and progress in the world, and thus one of your direst enemies. The excerpt describes our upcoming experience well. It reads, Ye shall not rob from the house I have built, or commit any theft or unrighteousness, lest ye be struck down and driven into the earth forthwith, and the land of the heathen consume you. So with that in mind, Let's talk about who we are. You are Garrett. You are a thief. As with most people who embark on a life of crime, Garrett's beginnings were not happy ones. He grew up a homeless youth on the streets of the city. Here's how he describes it. I was a kid. No parents, no home. Running messages and picking pockets to keep my ribs from meeting my spine. One night I saw a man. Folks just passed him by like he wasn't there. I thought he must have something valuable, so I snuck up on him and made a grab. That's not for you. Please, sir, I'm hungry. Don't tell the hammers, I promise. What is your name, boy? Garrett. You have talent, lad. Let go of me, old man! To see a keeper is not an easy thing. Especially one who does not wish to be seen. We have a need for those as gifted as yourself. If you've grown tired of how you live, 
Then follow me, and we will show you a different way. Leave me alone! As you wish. I caught up with him just before he vanished into the crowd. It was the beginning of a very long education. So Garrett goes with the man to begin his training to eventually become a full member of the Order of the Keepers. So he does do this, he succeeds, but not for very long. For unexplained reasons, he leaves the Order to take up his current life of thievery. This is where we find ourselves at the beginning of the actual game itself. So in addition to Garrett, the setting of the game is also quite unique. Thief takes place in a huge metropolis simply known as the city. The setting is certainly very interesting. Now, it's definitely medieval times. However, as you wander the world, you see this isn't the medieval times we learned about in school. In some rooms, you'll come across chugging power generators attached to sparking Tesla coils and powering electric lamps and powering other things like elevators, which are mixed in with stone staircases, ladders, and wall torches. So, you know, it's kind of like this very confused, anachronistic medieval time where there's some rudimentary forms of high technology and then also these very rudimentary forms of low technology. There are also small touches of magic in the world. The city seems like a very, very cool, complex, and interesting place to live, work, and steal. It's filled with many different factions, such as the Keepers, the Hammerites, the Mechanists, and the Tricksters. In addition to many prominent individuals, all of whom Garrett will inevitably have to interact with in some way or another. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, gameplay time. As we've seen, in Thief, you take control of Garrett, former member of the Keepers and Master Thief. Immediately after that intro clip we heard in the story section, you drop into a younger version of Garrett as he undergoes some basic training at the Keeper facility. It's here we learn exactly how this whole stealth thing is going to work. We're shown that to stay undetected, you must remain in shadow as much as possible. How well hidden you are is indicated by the light gem or visibility gem, which is located in the bottom center of your screen. When you are fully hidden, the gem is black with only the lightest hint of green. As you emerge from the shadows into the light, the gem brightens to a bright yellow once you're fully exposed. Next to the gem is a smaller secondary indicator that's black when you're completely safe, yellow when you should be cautious, and red when you're in danger. It kind of acts like your spider sense, or I guess Garrett's intuition as to uh, what kind of situation he is in. When you're well hidden, enemies who are facing in your direction will not see you unless they literally walk right into you. Light and shadow play an incredibly important role in the game, but these are not the only elements that affect your detectability. Movement also causes you to be detected. If you're in the shadows with an enemy nearby, keeping still will ensure you aren't seen, whereas moving may trigger them to start chasing you. However, movement isn't really the second most important aspect of stealthiness in this game. The second most important issue after light is sound. Sound is of immense importance in the world and gameplay of Thief. In your training, you quickly learn that you aren't as silent as you think you are. Your footsteps reverberate through the room. The volume of your footsteps can be controlled by two things. Firstly, there is the speed at which you're moving. So Thief is kind of a, a 3D first-person shooter-looking game. So you'd think that it controls in the same way. Most FPS-style games give you two options for movement, walk and run. However, in most FPS games, I'm thinking stuff like Doom and Quake and blah, blah, blah. Nobody gives a crap about walking. You run everywhere because if you want to get somewhere, you may as well get there as fast as possible. Well, in Thief, this does matter. The faster you move, the more noise you make. The more guards will notice you and uh, the less you will, let's say, stay alive. So unlike Doom or Quake or Unreal Tournament or Halo or whatever else you can think of, here we have three options for movement. We have walk slowly, walk, and run. Obviously, walking slowly generates the least amount of noise and run generates the most. So, Joe, you ask, why would I ever want to run? Well, the guards and thief are not the brightest bunch. So, if they do happen to find you, you may as well run. Eventually, they stop chasing you and get back to their lives, aimlessly patrolling the halls of whatever part of the city you happen to find yourself in. 
Now, the second aspect of sound in relation to your footsteps and being found is the type of flooring you're walking on. You learn very quickly that grass and carpet is awesome, resulting in kind of this very minimal swishing noise, whereas wood, stone, and marble tile or ceramic tile each emit much, much more sound. You're trained to keep to the quietest flooring that is currently available to you. You are also trained in the use of your weapons. There isn't the highest variety in your arsenal, but what you do have is really quite flexible. My favorite is your handy-dandy blackjack. Sneak up behind an unsuspecting enemy and whack them across the back of the head. They go down like a sack of potatoes. You can then drag their unconscious body into the shadows or around a corner where it won't be seen by other patrolling guards. Obviously, seeing their compatriots knocked out cold on the floor might alert them that something is up. The blackjack, though, is only useful if you're hidden. If you're noticed by an enemy, it becomes basically completely ineffective, even if you manage to get behind them. In these cases, you could switch to your handy-dandy sword. If you've pulled your sword, it generally means you've messed up. Garrett is a thief, not a warrior. In a stand-up fight, he isn't incredibly well-equipped. He doesn't have huge hitting power, nor does he have a great constitution or anything in the way of armor. Even a fairly lightly armored enemy will take at least three or four hits with the sword to go down. All the while, they are yelling for help. You have three attacks with your sword, a left swing, a right swing, and an overhead swing that is slower, but a little bit more powerful. Uh, you can also block with most any weapon that you have equipped. Your most versatile weapon, though, is your bow. In fact, it's really both a weapon and a tool, depending on what arrows you equip it with. Now, you have your regular run-of-the-mill broadhead arrows. These simply cause some amount of piercing damage to your target. They can, of course, be used to hit targets from range. Uh, I found that if I could wedge myself into a shadowed corner uh, or a perch above a room full of guards, I could slowly pick them off one at a time without them ever detecting me. It's actually quite a bit of fun seeing them run around in circles, yelling, going, where are you? Uh, come out, knave, blah, blah, blah. Uh, all the while, I'm just kind of pelting them till they all die. Next in the arsenal of arrows, and even more often used in my playthrough, are water arrows. Now, water arrows cause no actual damage at all. But uh, they do have one very useful ability. They can extinguish torches from a distance. See some enemies down a torchlit hall? Well, lob a water arrow at the torch, which will then plunge the room into darkness. The NPCs will notice the lights went out, and they'll go on alert, but they won't be able to see you as you pass them by. Uh, there's quite a variety of other arrows, including the fire arrow, which does huge damage to a target, the moss arrow, which creates a carpet of moss where it lands, quieting your steps, the noisemaker arrow, which causes a ruckus where it lands to distract guards and make them look the other way. Uh, arrows with knockout gas and even holy water arrows to put down enemies that are uh, not entirely alive, let's say. In addition, you have all of the standard acrobatic abilities. You can duck, jump, and climb ladders and even jump farther than usual by doing a running jump. One interesting tool you have, which, uh, which may have been lifted from the original Prince of Persia, another game that uh, I realize I need to cover on the show, is the ability to mantle. That is, if you don't quite make a jump or uh, a ledge is a little bit too high, Garrett will grab onto the edge and he'll pull himself up. This comes in quite handy throughout the game and uh, is frankly a lot more realistic than super jumping 30 feet into the air. I mean, he, Garrett's a thief. He's good at climbing. So with all our training complete, granted I've explained a bit more than simply what you go through in the five-minute training, uh, we accelerate time. It's now years later, Garrett has left the keepers, and we roll into the briefing for the first actual mission. Mission briefings are sort of like diary entries done by Garrett. He gives us some background on the job itself, whatever info he has going in, and some colorful language relating to the current state of affairs in his personal world. Uh, here's Mission one, where we are infiltrating the manor of one Lord Baffert. I have a simple job planned for this evening. Break into a guarded mansion, steal another fat nobleman's priceless trinket, and leave quietly. Lord Baffert is out of town, and rumor has it that the captain of his house guard went with him as a bodyguard. The time is ripe for a bit of burglary. The front gate of Lord Baffert's manor is always guarded, and the main street is far too exposed. But Cuddy tells me there's a better way in, around to the side, more out of the way. One guard, 
and likely no witnesses to complicate matters. The piece Cuddy wants is a scepter, silver, jewels, the usual adornments. It should command a high price. Bafford, like most of his kind, probably keeps his treasures on the top floor of the place, close to his heart and far from his servants. No point in waiting. I have Cuddy's old sketches of the place and everyone who's going to be asleep inside already is. It's time to begin. This mission is fairly straightforward, but it does give us a pretty good idea of how things go from mission to mission. As in most missions, in this one, we can't go in the front door. It's too heavily guarded. This is where one of the biggest tools and also biggest challenges of Thief comes in. We have to use our map. The map in Thief is what I will call semi-interactive. It doesn't really show you where you start. It doesn't always show you exactly where you need to go. Uh, It's usually in the style of a a charcoal sketch, and it shows you a general overview of uh, the level over one or more pages, with each page kind of denoting a specific area or floor or other separation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, It may also contain some handwritten notes with arrows pointing at areas, things like butler's room or guard station. Uh, The partially interactive part, though, is uh, that the map will highlight the general area that you are currently in, in a light blue color. This is helpful, but not nearly helpful enough. If it's your first time through a level, you will feel lost, slinking your way around, trying to avoid being seen with a rough map as your only reference. How do you get from the front of the manor up to the second floor where the scepter is stored? Trial and error. This also leads us to another aspect that didn't really come up in the training. There's more to do with sound. The best way to know where your enemies are is to listen. You're continuously inundated with sound effects. Your footsteps, guards' footsteps, guards whistling, talking to themselves, talking to each other, doors opening and closing, servants talking to each other, water dripping. The world is rich with sound and you can use all of it to your advantage. So, sneaking through the level, either avoiding detection, knocking out enemies, or engaging in some risky fights, you eventually make your way to the throne room and secure the scepter. In this case, there's no need to escape, the level is done, and you move on. The story progresses through 12 missions with the stakes raising higher and higher, with Garrett eventually seeking out the help of the Hammerites, which is a law-enforcing religious order that have no reason to help him except for a newfound common enemy, the Tricksters. The Tricksters have a valuable and potentially magical gem known as the Eye. Of course, by the end of the game, your goal will be to steal it, replace it, do a whole bunch of stuff. The story is actually quite interesting if, uh, if you play through to the end. As the game ends, Garrett is approached by a member of the Keepers who tells him he will soon need their help as the Metal Age is approaching. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... is a very interesting game from a technical standpoint. Since we're into 1998, the system requirements have words in them people born in the 90s will recognize, like Pentium. So, Thief required a Pentium 200 megahertz, 32 megs of RAM, 250 megs of hard drive space, a 4X CD-ROM drive, 4 megs of video RAM, SVGA graphics that ran at either 640x480 or 800x600 resolutions, along with 24-bit color. Garrett was controlled with what had become the standard for first-person games, at this point, the mouse and keyboard. One of the most interesting technical aspects of Thief was its engine, which was known simply as the Dark Engine. Now, on its surface, Thief is simply a medieval-style first-person shooter. You're wandering around a world, 
looking through Garrett's eyes, attacking or not attacking enemies, all stuff we've seen before. So why not use an existing engine? Well, you probably already know the answer. No existing FPS engine supported any of the game's stealth aspects. Graphically, the renderer delivered graphics that were similar to the original Quake, which had come out in 1996. Cutscenes were out of engine in a very cool semi-still comic format. Very interesting, very stylized, very cool. More important than the graphics, though, which of course were perfectly serviceable for the time, were the AI, sound, and object system. I think I've mentioned this before, but an object is really a programming term for some specific representation of some general type of thing, also known as a class, with, uh, with specific properties. So say we have a class that defines a guard. We want to create an instance of the guard class. To do so, we have to define certain parameters. We have to say things like, you know, what skin does the guard have? What voice does he have? What weapons does he carry? What path does he follow through the map? And what level of AI does he have? The result of this is a specific instance of a guard object. A level designer could then drop this guard object somewhere on the map. This then opened up more advanced engine functionality. Designers had very fine control over the sound propagation through a level. That is, they could define exactly where, how, and how far sound would carry through a level. This had an effect on both the player's ability to hear enemies approaching and also the enemy's ability to hear the player's missteps. Finally, we have AI. Most traditional FPS games have two states of AI. Let's call them rest and aggroed, to use a World of Warcraft term. Uh, either an enemy is not attacking you or they are attacking you. Now, this wasn't enough for a game like Thief. The Dark Engine allowed for four distinct AI states. There is the kind of the, the standard resting state where an enemy AI is performing its base scripted tasks. This could be standing still, patrolling an area, talking, whatever, whatever it's, it's supposed to be doing in its normal course of existence. When you come into the area, it can stay in that current state. That will happen if, if you know what you're doing and you stay out of sight and you do everything right. Otherwise, there are three other states the AI can enter. Firstly, there's kind of the next stage up, vague acknowledgement. This occurs if the AI detects a slight sound or a visual cue. This usually results in some dialogue like, what was that? Or did you hear something? Or you know something along those lines. This is basically a cue to you for stop, to stop dead in your tracks. Next, we have definite acknowledgement. This is caused by a, by a more major audio or visual cue, like making a loud noise or being seen partially out of shadow. This will cause NPCs to enter active search mode. In this case, they'll start wandering around, seeking you out, calling out to, for you to, uh, to show yourself. In this case, your best bet is to probably leave the area if, if you can. Finally, if an NPC blunders right into you, or you blunder directly into an NPC, or they see you fully lit, they will enter a state known as definite acquisition. In this case, they will directly attack you, calling out to any other nearby guards to come to their aid. In this case, you only have two options, fight or flee. Uh, the AI fights fairly well, and it doesn't take many hits to take you down, as we've already said, Garrett is not a very resilient kind of thief. If an enemy NPC takes damage, they may turn and flee, potentially alerting even more guards to your location. Now, for its time, the Dark Engine was really quite revolutionary. The same engine in a slightly improved state would go on to power Thief 2 and actually System Shock 2 as well. The game's music, as you've been hearing, was composed by Eric Brocious. He was the in-house composer at Looking Glass Studios at the time. The music is a very cool and atmospheric kind of fusion between classical medieval and 90s electronic rock sounds. It's uh, definitely, definitely quite interesting and appropriate to the weird pseudo-medieval world that we find ourselves in. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Okay, time for everyone's favorite part, the development story. So Thief began with someone I didn't actually suspect, nor did I even realize, Ken Levine. Uh, Shows how much I know. Ken was born September 1st, 1966 in Flushing, New York. He studied drama at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. This is where he learned how to tell a narrative story in a dramatic way. Immediately after college, he moved to L.A. to follow his dreams of a film career. Uh, While he was there, he wrote two screenplays, but uh, as far as I can see from my limited research, uh, nothing really took off. By 1995, he was looking through a Next Generation magazine and saw an ad for a game designer position with Looking Glass Studios located way back across the uh, continent in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was hired, and by April 1996, Levine started writing up his concept for his first game. He and fellow designer Doug Church were tasked with making an action RPG. After some failed attempts, including a first-person sword-fighting sim where you killed communist zombies called Better Red Than Undead, he settled on a slightly different approach. Uh, He'd still make a game focused around first-person sword-fighting, but it would be a bit more serious. His new idea was called Dark Camelot, and it was sort of a reversed, inverted, Arthurian story. In Dark Camelot, you play Mordred, who's traditionally the man who betrayed King Arthur, Here, Mordred was a misunderstood hero with Arthur portrayed as an evil king and Merlin as a crazed psychopathic wizard. There was much more to it than that. Guinevere was a lesbian who portrayed Lancelot to help you steal the Holy Grail. I mean, overall, this was a pretty wild idea. So some development began on Dark Camelot. Uh, The game featured first-person action along with some RPG and adventure aspects. By late 1996, though, the original lead producer on the project had left and Warren Spector himself, who had just left Origin Systems, came on board. Uh, There was even a base engine for this game named Stargate, which provided the basic action-adventure RPG functionality. Dark Camelot was one of those not-so-awesome projects that didn't really have a very strong direction. The story was sort of everywhere, the gameplay wasn't very tight, and it didn't really have much of a point. One day, some of the staff members were playing the current build, and instead of running out into the fray and attacking, they tried getting through a level by distracting guards and avoiding combat. Doug Church described the early stealth model as basically waiting for a guard to turn around and look the other way, and then rushing past. Even with this very basic form of emergent gameplay, they realized they probably had a better mechanic here than the traditional hack and slash Levine had wanted in the first place. By early 1997, the name of the project had been changed from Dark Camelot to The Dark Project, and a focus on the new stealth mechanic was mandated. They likened the gameplay to that of a submarine game. Submarine was very powerful when hidden, but very vulnerable when exposed. From a technical perspective, the the game engine was now being developed as less of a hack-and-slash game engine and more of kind of a 3D reality simulator. The intention, from a technical point of view, was that everything had properties that made those objects behave as real-world objects would. Things that burn could burn, things that could be picked up were able to be picked up, etc. They even had an idea for multiplayer, which they referred to as theft match, where small teams would race to steal the most loot on a map. Of course, as we could see, this, this didn't quite make it into the final game. As development moved into mid-1997, Looking Glass hit some financial trouble. This lost them their Austin office, which included Warren Spector and some key game engine programmers. This caused a decent amount of chaos in the schedule. Uh, Around this time, Ken Levine had also left the project. In fact, the whole concept of the Keepers was added later on by someone else. By April 1997, Looking Glass had laid off half of its staff. Morale was in the toilet, and it looked like the game might be cancelled altogether. As anyone who's kind of been in one of these situations before uh, would acknowledge and would would attest to, not knowing who would be in the office the next day, or in fact not even knowing if the office would be open the next day, caused several more key personnel to quit, including the lead programmer who had been building the AI system, which, uh, as we've seen, is a crucial component of the game. So he, he also left. Tom Leonard would come on as a new lead developer and soon realized he had come into a little bit of a mess. The AI system was in shambles. He did believe, though, that with some work, it could be salvaged. 
So over the next few months, he worked at it. It it turns out most of it could be used to some degree. The first step was to cut out superfluous systems that uh, were still trying to be implemented from the Dark Camelot concept. You know, they were still trying to do this whole adventure RPG everything game. So, you know, they dropped full 3D inventory interfaces, multiplayer, branching mission structure. Leonard and the new team management decided they were now making a focused single player stealth game. By November of 97, they had a working design for the new game engine and AI system. And by April 1998, the game was renamed from The Dark Project to Thief The Dark Project to describe the game even more explicitly. While all this was going on, though, the publisher, Eidos Interactive, was starting to have second thoughts about this apparent boondoggle of a project. Frankly, the team wasn't even sure they had a fun game on their hands. It was riddled with bugs, and the AI system was still not finalized. All new development on the critical AI system was halted, and all development and design resources were poured into some smaller proof-of-concept projects to show Eidos convincing them not to pull a plug on the project and narrowly avoiding cancellation a second time. So after a soul-crushing amount of hours and effort extending across the summer and into the fall, the bugs were crushed, the game was tested, and the Looking Glass team began to convince themselves they actually had a fun game on their hands. Thief went gold in November 1998. Despite the team's worry that the slow, steady gameplay style would be unmarketable, the game reviewed very well. It was a refreshing change from the glut of run-and-gun FPSs of the day. It was seen as an intelligent game that required strategy and consideration. The stealth mechanics, incredible sound design, and suspenseful and immersive gameplay were commended. By May 2000, the game had sold half a million copies. In 1999, Thief Gold was released. It contained three new missions and some minor tweaks to the existing missions, but more importantly, it shipped with a level editor. In February of 2000, Thief 2 The Metal Age released. This continues the story of the first game with Garrett facing a new faction, the Mechanists. It continued to, uh, to use an upgraded version of the Dark Engine, which now supported colored lighting, weather effects, and more polygons. In addition, guards have more AI states. Upon detection, some guards will run to raise an alarm instead of simply running at you and fighting. They'll notice if items are out of place. All in all, a richer experience that maintained the core gameplay that everyone loved from the first game. There was also less emphasis on combat and an even larger focus on stealth. Again, multiplayer was announced, but did not appear in the game. Thief 2 received positive reviews and is considered a success. In 2004, Eidos published Thief Deadly Shadows. Sadly, Looking Glass had gone out of business by this time. Actually, I believe they went out of business back in 2000. Uh, so the development contract was given to Ion Storm Entertainment, where many of Looking Glass's staff had ended up anyway. The game was developed simultaneously for the PC and the Xbox. Gameplay was similar to previous games, except now, instead of moving directly from mission to mission, Garrick can walk the streets of the city between his tasks. Instead of uh, upgrading the Dark Engine, though, the team at Ion Storm decided to use a heavily modified version of Unreal Engine 2. Now, they made big improvements to Unreal's lighting and sound subsystems since, as we've seen, those are hugely important to Thief's gameplay. Sound propagation was a function of a level's architecture in addition to the materials that walls, windows, doors, and floors were made of. Thief Deadly Shadows was again a success. Despite this, though, Ion Storm sadly went out of business only one year later in 2005. So, what does the future hold for Thief? Well, quite a bit, it seems. Uh, firstly, thanks to the level designer that was released with Thief Gold, a thriving mod and custom level community grew up around the game, with over 700 custom levels available for the games. That, in addition to some really great texture packs and source upgrades, uh, it really makes the old games worthwhile to play on modern systems. Now, while all of this fan service is nice, Eidos is still on board with the series. Eidos's Montreal studio is currently developing a fourth game in the Thief series. When it's done, it will be published by Square Enix. 
Uh, we've heard rumors about this dating back to 2009, but the game was only officially announced in the March 2013 issue of Game Informer. Uh, the game will feature Garrett, albeit with a different voice than we're used to, doing what he does best, stealing stuff. Uh, there will also there will be some RPG elements with skill leveling and uh, and you know modern tropes like that. So Thief, as it is simply known, will be released sometime in 2014 for the PC, PS4, and quote unquote other next gen consoles. Of course, I will keep you all up to date with more news as it comes out about this next Thief game. So with that awesome news in mind, where can we get Thief today? Well, you can get it from two places that I love to link to. If you jump over to Steam, you can get the first three games individually for seven to eight bucks each, or all three in a collection for $18.99. At GOG.com, you can get the same three games individually, DRM-free, for $3.99 each, a little cheaper over at GOG. Both versions, the Steam and GOG ones, uh, support the texture upgrades and source ports that I talked about, and I do recommend you fiddle with them unless you're really committed to playing the game in their original form. Uh, I find the games much, much more playable running in native resolution with some nicer textures. So we've got one more email here from Elima. She writes... Greetings, Joe. I'd like to preface this with a very important bit of information. I'm not big on stealth games. The only stealth games I've played are Mark of the Ninja and the Assassin's Creed games, if you can even call the AC games stealth. I never played the Thief games back in, uh, back in the game, so I went in completely fresh, unless you count the slight twinge of guilt at letting Thief, the Thief games simmer in my Steam list since the last big sale, the holiday sale, not the summer sale. Whoops. So, I started at the beginning with Thief. Things didn't go so well. After frustratingly reassigning all my key bindings, the game I thought was using a QWERTY keyboard instead of an Azerty, and uh, no amount of alt-tabbing helped, I finally jumped into the game and I got hopelessly lost. From what I gather, I think exploring is a big part of the game. But when you can't even find the silly arrow cache on the first level, well, I might have been spoiled by all our modern quest markers, but I don't remember being this stumped in Morrowind, or maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset. High noon isn't exactly the best time to be playing a Thief game. Regardless, I thought I'd give Thief 2 a try. It seemed like more of the same. Updated graphics, same controls, same mechanics. But perhaps you'll disprove me in the podcast. The one that really stood out was Thief Deadly Shadows. This one seemed much more organic and came more naturally. Or is it because I was starting to get the hang of it? Who knows? I will say that I think the Thief games seem fairly well designed with interesting mechanics. The water arrows to douse torches are a particular favorite of mine, and I can understand why they're such a huge hit among stealth game players to this day. Small wonder some people are still working on huge mods to upgrade textures. But again, not my cup of tea, so I guess it's difficult for me to say whether or not they still hold up. For stealth game players, sure, I guess. But uh, they may not be for everyone. I'll definitely be looking forward to hearing the dev story and tech focus, as well as your own opinion on the games. Thank again, thanks again for putting out the podcast. You do such a wonderful job of it, Emily slash Elima. Thank you very much for that. And um, you know, my my opinion's coming coming very shortly, and I don't necessarily disagree with you, but uh, I'll get more into that in a bit. Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So, if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So, as I teased, let's answer the question, is Thief still fun today? Well, here is my opinion. Like Alima, I never played Thief back when it came out. It's one of those games I had heard of and wasn't convinced by the genre at the time. Maybe because of that or maybe not, but uh, I've never really played any stealth action games. I don't think I've ever touched a Metal Gear game, so honestly, playing Thief, Thief 2, and Thief Deadly Shadows for this podcast was really my introduction to actually playing the genre. I put up some of my research videos on Twitch and YouTube, and uh, if you guys head over and watch them, you will tell very quickly that I am not very good at these games. I died a lot, 
and I had a tendency to simply go on attack when I would invariably get discovered by NPCs. Uh, the controls definitely took some getting used to, so you may be thinking that I don't love these games. Well, initially, you are correct. I did not. Uh, I thought they were intensely frustrating. I didn't like having three different buttons to walk forward with. I kept remapping my controls. I always got noticed when trying to blackjack a guard. It was just frustrating. Eventually, though, I started to get the hang of it, and it started to get really fun. Playing alone in my basement with my headphones on, having Garrett crouched in the corner while the footsteps of three or four guards reverberated in my headphones was an incredibly immersive experience. The sound design in these games is truly incredible, and I think if I had played them back when they came out, I would have truly loved them. So, if you enjoy stealth games and you haven't tried this series, it is a must-play. If you haven't really ever tried a stealth game, give it a go. Given a bit of time, you may be pleasantly surprised. As I just said, if you do try them, I do strongly recommend you get the source ports and the texture packs. There is a patcher that's uh, that's linked right on the Steam forums. I'll try to add it in the show notes as well, but uh, there's quite a few links though, so I might just link to the uh, the big post in the forums there. Uh, when you kick these games up to 1920 by 1080 with high-res textures, they become much, much more fun to play. So Thief, definitely worth your time, and if, uh, if you get the first game on GOG, it is definitely worth your four bucks. The Treks in Sci-Fi Podcast. Stand by to receive our transmission. Sci-fi entertainment news and commentary. I am Locutus of Borg. Star Trek episode analysis. Captain of the USS Enterprise. Pokey religions and ancient weapons. Collectibles, toy, and prop reviews. I am to misbehave. The weekly Treks in Sci-Fi podcast with your host Rico at treksinsci-fi.com. Okay, before we close the show, I want to announce the winner of the Duke 3D giveaway. Completely coincidentally, nothing to do with the fact that I just read her email, the winner is Elima. Congrats, I hope you enjoy some Duke 3D, or at least have some fun reminiscing when you play it. So, for our next giveaway, I figure I'd do something pertinent. Since I told everyone they should give Thief a whirl, I'm giving away a Steam copy of the Thief collection. That is all three Thief games. So, I guess I'll run this one for another show or two. Drop me an email with the subject Thief Contest or drop a post on the Facebook group or to UMB Show or on Twitter or to UMB Show on Twitter asking uh, for an entry to the Thief Contest and you could be running through the city as Garrett. So that's that. Uh, We got some great emails this week and as always, I'd like to thank everyone for contributing both to the show directly and to the little community we have going on on Facebook, Twitter and over on Steam. Uh, I recently started a YouTube channel, as I kind of tangentially mentioned uh, in my opinion piece over there. Uh, There I put up some of my research gameplay videos, and I'm starting to lean toward doing a little bit of more uh, kind of produced video content as well over the next little while. So keep an eye over there. That's uh, You simply need to search for UMBcast on uh, YouTube, and that'll pop up uh, the channel. I also started posting a little bit on Google+, so a quick search for Upper Memory Block Podcast over there if you're a D-plus user. We'll get you the show page on that network. It is social media madness. I tell you, I am all over the place. Uh, So next time, I'm going to roll back over to the adventure side of things with a big series that, again, I haven't experienced myself. We will be looking at the Tex Murphy series. So I'm excited to see what there is to see there. As always, please send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks of course, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter, twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally, twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, you can find the Steam community at steamcommunity.com slash groups slash umbcast. Google+, YouTube, everything else. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. So that is that for another week, and we will see you next time for Tex Murphy here in the Upper Memory Block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.